0: Is repetition always bad? The letter to the Hebrews lies at the heart of a tradition that views repetition as always negative. But is this the best understanding of Hebrews? Nicholas Moore says no. To as we talk with Nicholas Moore about his recent book, Repetition in Hebrews. In this special double-feature interview, we will also discuss Albert Van Hoy's A Perfect Priest, co-edited and co-translated by Nicholas Moore and Richard Ounsworth. You're listening to New Books and Biblical Studies, a channel of the New Books Network, and I'm Michael Morales, your host. Rev. Dr. Nicholas Moore is director of the MA programs at Cranmer Hall and teaches practical theology, Anglicanism, and biblical studies and patristics. Nicholas, welcome to New Books and Biblical Studies.
1: Thank you. It's good to be with you.
0: So, Nicholas, when did your interest in the book of Hebrews begin?
1: Yes, it's a good question. Um, I can remember, uh, obviously, Bible studies and sermon series at church, uh, but I remember doing a a series of readings in Hebrews with one of my tutors when I was in seminary. We'd um, gone to the Central African Republic. We were doing a teaching mission out there. He was a a Dutch Reformed pastor and had been a missionary out there, and we just read it in the morning in this Central African sun. Uh, And so I remember doing that quite distinctly. And then from there, it really blossomed. I looked into doing it for my master's degree. Uh, That happened, my dissertation on into my doctoral work. I think um, I've been intrigued by the letter because it's quite an enigmatic text. It's dense. It's tightly argued, um, particularly interested by the tabernacle, the the cultic imagery and how that relates to Christ and to the Christian life. And I have to say, the more I spend time on it, the more fascinated
0: I become. The title of your book is Repetition in Hebrews. Can you orient us on the topic of repetition and the role of Hebrews on this topic historically?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, my, uh, my work looks at how uh, Hebrews talks about or conceptualizes repetition. So we're not thinking about um, how it uses verbal repetition in a stylistic sense, but what it says about repetition. And the letter says some striking things about repetition, particularly old covenant sacrifices, uh, and it's often been assumed to present a negative view of repetition. So it shows it to be ineffective or ritualistic, just dead outward religion. Um, that's a slight caricature, but the same basic assumptions can still be found in some scholarship today. And I think um, one of the interesting places to see this touchdown is in the Reformation period. So in my own Anglican tradition, there's a fascinating uh, late 16th century exchange between the Puritan Thomas Cartwright and uh, the high churchman John Whitgift, who later became the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, And Cartwright is protesting. You can't pray. You shouldn't pray the Lord's Prayer more than once on any one occasion. Uh, It's just vain repetition. It's empty formalism. Uh, And Whitgift is arguing back that you can and you should do that. And if you look at the context of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6, Jesus commands his disciples not to babble on. He uses the Greek word bataligeo, which is kind of onomatopoeic, you know, like our word babble. Um, But if you look at the Geneva Bible, 1560, we find that translated, use no vain repetitions. And we also find that phrasing Thomas Cranmer's preface to the 1549 prayer book. Um, And from there, it goes into the King James Bible, it enters the English consciousness, this idea that repetition is a vain or empty phenomenon. And I think Hebrews plays a key role in that. It's a central text uh, for that uh, debate in the Reformation period and beyond uh, when it comes to assessing the priesthood of Christ, the implications of this for Christian practice, including obviously hot topics like the Eucharist. Um, And my contention would be there's a a certain kind of Protestant reading, speaking here as a, an Anglican in the Reformed tradition, so I'm sort of being self-critical, um, that can dismiss repetition. Um, and what I'm seeking to do is to go back to one of the supposed source texts for that, just to see if we can reevaluate what it actually says. Um, and I do that by looking at, at three main areas. So uh, there's revelation, the word of God, which is uh, in the opening of Hebrews, it came in many and various ways to our ancestors. Uh, repentance, which Hebrews famously or perhaps infamously says cannot be repeated, uh, and then rituals, specifically Hebrews' description of um, Old Covenant tabernacle sacrifices and Christ's sacrifice in the light of them.
0: You argue that the perspective of Hebrews on repetition is clarified when we see that the letter's presentation of Christ's death depends heavily on the Old Testament tradition of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. Tell us about this.
1: Certainly. Um, Clearly, any reading of Hebrews uh, is going to spot that the Old Testament Day of Atonement is a central feature of the way it presents Christ and his priesthood and his atoning offering. Now, Hebrews frequently emphasizes the once for all nature of atonement, um, more than the rest of the New Testament put together. In fact, if you look at that keyword hapax or the emphatic ephapax, once for all. And this once for allness, uh, you do find it elsewhere. So it's attributed to Jesus' death in places like uh, Romans 6, in 1 Peter 3. But Hebrews goes further by connecting it with Yom Kippur. Uh, and that's the only major festival that you find described as once a year in the Old Testament. Now, a lot of uh, readers of Hebrews have noticed this. But what I think is often missed is the fact that it's not just Yom Kippur, but rather the whole of the tabernacle system that points towards Christ. So, for example, in Hebrews 9, 6, we read about the daily service of the priests. They make the morning and evening tamid sacrifices. And then in the next verse, we read about the high priest entering the most holy place once, uh, once a year, that one day a year, Yom Kippur. And both of those movements are perfected or pushed to their extreme in Christ. So the once a year becomes once for all, and the daily or the regularly becomes perpetually or eternally in Christ's ongoing high priestly
0: prayer. Chapter six of your book addresses priesthood and sacrifice motifs in Hebrew's central cultic section. Explain for us the nature of repetition in the argument of this section of Hebrews.
1: Mm. So the the sacrificial section of Hebrews uh, is perhaps the hardest place to see my argument working. Um, In Hebrews chapter 10, we read things like this. So the law can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who approach. Otherwise, wouldn't they have ceased being offered since the worshippers cleansed once for all would no longer have any consciousness of sin? So it seems self-evident. Repetition means that it doesn't work or even worse, it destroys the effect that might have been there in the first place. And that's supposedly a feature of all ritual. I think the first thing I'd say to that is uh, that we we shouldn't equate ritual and repetition. Not all rituals are repeated and not all repetition is ritual. I eat breakfast every day. Um, Is that a ritual? Well, it might be ritualized, mightn't it? But it doesn't necessarily form a ritual. That depends on other things as well. So in Hebrews, what I argue is that uh, repetition reveals inefficacy, but doesn't cause it. That is to say that it shows the old covenant sacrifices were not ultimately effective, but repetition itself doesn't constitute that lack of effect. Uh, The the lack of effect is actually to be found elsewhere. So in the fact that the sacrifices were animal rather than human, uh, the fact that they were offered involuntarily rather than obediently. And all of this becomes clear Um, only in the Christ event. So it's only in the light of that, when you get a once for all uh, perfect sacrifice that cleanses definitively, it's only then that you can see that the previous ones were ineffective in in some sense, in that sense. Um, And then the fact that Christ's uh, saving uh, death, uh, saving work is presented in thoroughgoing cultic terms suggests that those old covenant sacrifices were, in fact, a kind of placeholder or a preparation. They were divinely ordained to point forward. Um, And there's also then scope for cultic acts, the sacrifice of praise, the sacrifice of good deeds, which Hebrews mentions in chapter 13, uh, scope for those sacrifices to continue in the lives of Christians after the once-for-all Christ event.
0: So give us the bottom line for Hebrews. When is repetition effective or ineffective?
1: The bottom line is the Christ event. So the relationship of any form of repetition to the Christ event determines its construal uh, or evaluation by Hebrews. Um, so if the, uh, the repeated proclaiming and expounding of God's word prepares for the coming of Christ um, or enables Christians after Christ to persevere with him, then it's effective, even though it's repeated. Um, If repeated sacrifices prepare for the atoning work of Christ, or those repeated uh, Christian sacrifices we talked about represent an ongoing dependence on his work, then they too are effective. Uh, By contrast, to come to that controversial uh, falling away apostasy passages, um, if you have a complete falling away from salvation, uh, then that is spurning Christ's work. uh, And as a result, there's no restitution, there's no repetition Of repentance, because what you've done is to to heap shame onto Christ again and to detract from the once for all atonement. So that's what I I think I'd say is the bottom line, is how does it relate to the Christ event?
0: In addition to repetition in Hebrews, you served as co-editor and co-translator for a collection of essays on Hebrews by Albert Van Hoy. The volume is called A Perfect High Priest. Tell us about Van Hoy and his legacy in the study of Hebrews. Why did you want to publish these essays in English?
1: Mm, yes, I co-edited this uh, volume with Richard Aunsworth and it just came out in in late 2018. Um, we've collected 16 essays; they're all translated from French. Uh, one one was in Italian originally. Um, yes, Albert Van Roy, um <laughs> He's a Frenchman of Flemish extraction. He's lived and taught most of his career. In Rome and the Vatican, so in Italian speaking and even sometimes Latin speaking environs. Um, I, I suspect his name has been pronounced all sorts of ways. <laughs> and uh, we'll, as, you, as you said, we'll stick with Van Hoy, I think, for, uh, for this Flemish name, despite being a French scholar. Um, so Van Hoy has a, has a career spanning seven or eight decades, if you look at his publications. Uh, he's done all sorts of things in that time. He, he's been rector of the Pontifical Biblical Institute in Rome. Um, He oversaw the production of the important uh, Roman Catholic teaching document, The Interpretation of the Bible in the Church, that came out in the early 1990s. Um, He's had a wide variety of roles and interests, uh, president of SNTS, uh, editor of Biblica, the the journal. Uh, Throughout his career and throughout his work, his mainstay has been Hebrews. And I think what... (laughs) What happened essentially was that Richard Ellsworth and I had both appreciated his work during our doctoral studies, and the project was really born out of that, and some conversations and interactions we had, and we wrote to him, and he was uh, very supportive of it. Um, It's worth saying there have been a couple of commentaries by Van Hoy. uh, Never in the course of his career really did he produce a commentary until much later in his life. Maybe that's a good way around to do it. I don't know. Um, but so a couple of English commentaries have just come out. One's called A Different Priest, and the other's called The Letters of the Hebrews A New Commentary. Um, and those appeared within the last decade. Uh, and I think it's helpful for scholars who don't read French to be able to access some of this meteor exegesis, which underlies many of the translation decisions and many of the comments that he makes in, in those kind of works. And what we've uh, Done with the uh, with the volume is to avoid work that overlaps with monographs already available in english um, we sought to include some harder to find pieces such as those that are buried in in collected volumes in French that most English speaking institutions wouldn't have so in a in a sense, this volume is a, a tribute to van Hoy, but it's also about accessibility of some of his uh, some of his good work best work over uh, the, the last few decades.
0: The first part of Van Hoy's essays is on priesthood and sacrifice. One of the chapters here is called Eternal Spirit and Sacrificial Fire. Tell us about this contribution.
1: Yes, certainly. This is one of my uh, favorite pieces. Um, Hebrews 9, verse 14, speaks of Christ offering himself to God through or by eternal spirit. And that's a a phrase that has long attracted the attention of commentators. Uh, Is it Christ's own spirit? Is it uh, a disposition? Is it the Holy Spirit? What is it there? Um, And how should we take that preposition, dia, the the through or the by? What what exactly is going on there? And what Van Hoy does is to read uh, the uh, verse through a long tradition of commentary. So he goes right back from the patristic era Uh, through the Middle Ages, to the Reformation and beyond, uh, to modern commentators. And he notes uh, uh, what is a kind of developing tradition, and he traces the way it develops, uh, of reading this eternal spirit in contrast to or comparison to the perpetual fire of the altar of burnt offering. Um, And in in support of that reading, he finds a very similar phrase in 1st Ezra, the the Greek uh, Ezra, which uses that phrase perpetual fire in relation to the altar and in relation to sacrifice. And I think what's great about this piece is it it combines a a very sympathetic reading of the history of interpretation of of previous commentators, uh, a very ecclesial reading. It's it's emerged within the church. And yet at the same time, uh, you have those very robust historical critical Uh, Insights and methodology at work. So I really love the way that Van Hoy combines those. Um, I've found that, you know, I I seek to do similar things uh, at times in my own work. Um, So it's a a really uh, lovely piece in the way it brings those together.
0: The second part of the essays is on thematic studies. Could you summarize Van Hoy's insights on Chapter Eleven, which is about Christ as recreator of humanity?
1: Mm, Yes, this chapter is about uh, human rights. So it comes shortly after the papal encyclical Redemptor Hominis, um, Christ's redeemer of uh, humanity. Um, and uh, what Van Hoy does is, as is often his instinct, he turns to Hebrews to say, OK, what biblical material can we find on human rights? And he looks uh, at Um, Psalm 8, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you would consider him, which is quoted and interpreted in Hebrews uh, chapter 2. Uh, And in there, he identifies two rights that humans have. One is to rule over creation, and the other is to have access to God. Uh, and, And Hebrews ascribes those to the people of God. Now, the argument of Hebrews 2 is that that hasn't happened, none of that, you know, those rights haven't been uh, exercised because of human sin, but then also that those are both restored by Christ. And uh, that happens not through some kind of glorious uh, conquest or a reassertion of humanity's rightful place, but instead through the path of suffering and death, as Hebrews goes on to elaborate. Uh, And in that you find a really important theme, which is that of Christ's solidarity with human beings. So he comes uh, to the inside of uh, humanity and renews us from within, as it were. Um, And in that light, Van Hoy then says that this, uh, this new covenant, this Christian privilege of uh, of boldness parousia uh, is, um, could be interpreted as a a sort of right of expression, uh, but also a right of movement into the presence of God. Now, I think it's a a fascinating piece. And uh, the the, the modern language of rights does offer a perspective uh, into the text, a way of getting into the text and uh, and reading it afresh. In my view, this piece, I think, is only just getting going, because what Van Hoy has traced there is a really cosmic scope for what human rights might be in in their ultimate uh, dimension. But what he doesn't do is bring that into conversation with the very specific meaning of human rights as we have it in contemporary discourse, which is, Um, freedoms or entitlements of of the person with respect to individuals or property or society more generally. Um, So his closing note is Christians need to show solidarity with others. They need to respect human rights. I think that's absolutely right. I think there could be more to develop and to say there because we have this cosmic picture of what human rights could be.
0: Part three of the book is on Van Hoy's exegetical studies. As an example, tell us about Van Hoy's findings in the essay called Long Journey or Imminent Access.
1: Yes, I will. Uh, I mean, I should say we called that third part of the book exegetical studies uh, because Van Hoyt has this particular understanding of exegesis as uh, serving the interpretation of the, of the church, um, not to imply that the other studies in the book aren't exegetical, of course. So when you look at his work, you'll find that a, a deep concern for very careful exegesis uh, throughout. So what's going on in this uh, particular chapter is that Van Hoy is interacting with Ernst Kirserman, who wrote a a famous and and justly so uh, book on the wandering people of God. And he wrote that in prison in in World War Two. But he has this kind of idea of uh, the uh, Christian life in Hebrews as dominated by this pilgrim motif, that that's the, the, the significant undergirding motif. And what Van Hoy does is to explore the, the Greek Old Testament background, so the Septuagint background for the narrative account of the people of God in the wilderness. Um, in Hebrews 3 and 4, we have this uh, account um, brought to the fore, and uh, it's done using Psalm 95. So Psalm 95 is quoted at quite great length, and then it's interpreted and expounded. Um, but there isn't any sort of explicit signal of what the source is for the narrative. And yet the narrative of that account is quite important for the way that the author interprets Psalm 95. So what Van Hoy is doing is is saying, well, where in the Pentateuch do we find, uh, you know, the back the background of the narrative that the author is assuming his his readers will be accessing. And uh, he shows, I think, quite convincingly, that uh, numbers 14, and the Israelite rebellion at Kadesh Barnea is what's in the picture here. So it's not a general reference to rebellion or grumblings of the, the Israelites in the desert, um, but rather a particular point, which is Kadesh Barnea, which is the um, the attempt, the failed attempt to enter the Promised Land. And as a result, he's then able to argue that Hebrews doesn't envisage a, a sort of pilgrim existence in terms of being on the way. Uh, but rather a kind of imminent, you're on the threshold of entering the land, and this is the moment of decision. Um, And I think that's really important because that heightens the eschatological tension we find in in Hebrews. It heightens the need for response, uh, which is something that Hebrews really, really puts front and center.
0: Obviously, Nicholas, you've spent a lot of time in the book of Hebrews. Can you tell us about any current projects? Are you planning any further work in Hebrews?
1: Yes. Well, I I should say... um, translation has been fun, but it's a lot of work. But I am actually engaged in another translation project, which is not on Hebrews. This is um, of Alain Le Bouleuc, who uh, wrote a book called La notion d'hénessy, so the notion of heresy uh, in, the, in the second and third centuries in Greek writers. It's quite an important work responding to Walter Bauer's uh, hypothesis on uh, heresy and, and orthodoxy in earliest Christianity. And it hasn't really had the reception it deserves, an English-speaking scholarship. So um, together with David Linscombe, uh, we're editing a, a translation of that, which I'm hopeful will be forthcoming <laughs> in the not-too-distant future. That's on the translation side. Um, in terms of Hebrews, yeah, I'm still chipping away. I, I still, as I said at the beginning, I find this book ever more fascinating. I teach a, a level one, year one um, Uh, intro to hermeneutics class and we use Hebrews as the text and I just love engaging with um, sort of fresh theological students on it. Um, I'm particularly working at the moment in my research on uh, a bit of um, really looking at Christ's heavenly work, his heavenly enthronement or session, um, what's going on when he at praise what's the kind of extent of his sacrifices into the heavenly sphere when does it finish that that kind of thing
0: it's been great spending time with you Nicholas thank you for being with us that's great thank you right friends you've been listening to new books in biblical studies a channel of the new books Network until next time goodbye